Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Burning of Chambersburg and McCausland's Raid, Ted Alexander. Ted Alexander, author of The Burning of Chambersburg and McCausland's Raid. How long have you been interested in the Civil War? Well, about 60 years. I'm going to be 65 here in another month. And when I was in first grade, my mother took me to Gettysburg. And I have had the bug ever since. What do you remember about that first trip? What I remember about the whole Civil War experience in my early years was... My dad was from Mississippi. I was born in Mississippi. When he died, I was an infant, and we came back to Greencastle, Pennsylvania. That's my mom's hometown. And we'd, I'd spend my summers in the South with relatives in Tennessee and Mississippi. And I'd talk to my granddad in, down in Mississippi. He'd say, Dad said this, Dad said that. Well, Dad, was in the 31st Mississippi Regiment in the Confederate Army. Then back in Greencastle, growing up in the Cumberland Valley, my grandmother would always say about Dad saying this and Dad saying that. He was in the Union Army in the 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade. So I just grew up around it, and then my mother would take me to Gettysburg and then Antietam and then all these other Civil War battlefields. Do you have any memorabilia or diaries or letters or anything from your great-grandparents? I um, have a blood-stained pocket Bible of my great-uncle who was killed at the Battle of Chancellorsville. That's one of the main pieces of memorabilia that I have. Well, growing up, did you see one side as the good guys and one side as the bad guys, or did you have... At one time, at one time, I wanted to be a rebel and I was taken up for the underdog and for, for the Confederates. Over the years, uh, that kind of gets tempered. And, you know, I was in a war. I was in the Vietnam War. And I see the troubles we have today in this country. So there's still people running around trying to be <clears throat> pro-Union or pro-Confederate. And I think we ought to forget about that and concentrate on the problems that we have. You are right now a historian at Antietam. Correct. How did you parlay being a six-year-old kid just getting interested in it to what you do today? Well, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a park ranger or historian, either at Gettysburg or Antietam. So I feel I've been blessed. Um, I, I got out of the military. I was in the service. Uh, this was 40 years ago. I was in the Marine Corps for five years, and I got out. And I drove a truck for a while. And then I decided I actually was influenced by a preacher at a camp meeting who, uh, this was a church camp meeting, he said I ought to go to college. 
And I took him up on it and I went to college. And I got a bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland College Park. And eventually I got a master's degree from the University of Maryland. In history? In history. And I was a high school history teacher for a couple years. But then through the help of well-known Civil War historian Dennis Fry, I was able to get on full-time with the National Park Service. I started part-time at Harper's Ferry, interpreting both the Civil War and John Brown's raid there. And then I went on full-time. I was working down at uh, the Washington Mon at the National Mall. I worked at the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, and then I got uh, a promotion and I went to Fort Washington. This is working for the Park Service? Working for the National Park Service. Then I eventually ended up at Antietam, where I always wanted to be. Now, on this network, we talk a lot about Gettysburg and show a lot of Gettysburg because it's in Pennsylvania, but uh, can you just give a thumbnail sketch of uh, Antietam? Well, the Battle of Antietam was the bloodiest one-day battle in the Civil War uh, after 12 hours of fighting. More than 23,000 Americans killed, wounded, or missing, captured or missing. Out of that battle, Abraham Lincoln is given the impetus to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. So it's rated as, often Gettysburg is called the turning point of the Civil War, but in more recent times, historians have looked upon Antietam as a turning point. And when, when did it happen in the war relative to Gettysburg? So, oh, about nine months uh, prior to Gettysburg, September 17, 1862. Who won? Well, traditionally, historians have called it a tie. However, Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army has to, is forced to abandon the field within another day and curtail their invasion of the North and go back into Virginia. So many of us argue, well, if you have to do that, the Union, your opponent wins because they hold the field. But George B. McClellan, the Union commander is criticized by President Lincoln and many others for failing to follow up on his victory, for failing to pursue Lee into Virginia. And within a couple months after the Battle of Antietam, he is uh, relieved of command. Now, it says in your bio in this book that you are the park historian at Antietam. What does that mean? My duties have varied over the years as park historian. I give special talks, I um, uh, do research, I handle research requests, and I'm, I'm proud to say some of the top historians in the country have come to research at our library, including Pennsylvanian Jeffrey Wirt, who's a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author. Been on this program. He's, I'm sure he's been on this program. Uh, James McPherson, Pulitzer Prize winning. Been on this program. He, he's probably been here. Mm -hmm. uh, Ed Bars, the former chief historian of the National Park Service. Uh, Bud Robertson, who wrote a, an award-winning book on uh, Stonewall Jackson. So we get a lot of these folks into research, but then I also handle research requests on a daily basis, just from John Q that might be researching their uh, ancestor. Now, your book is on uh, the burning of Chambersburg. For people who are not familiar with it, where is Chambersburg? Chambersburg is uh, approximately uh, 
20 miles north of the Mason-Dixon line, right in the heart of the Cumberland Valley. How big is it? Uh, today, I think it's uh, over 20,000. Back then, it was probably uh, between four and 5,000. Now, there's two books that, that we're talking about. One is Southern Re Revenge, Civil War, History of Chambersburg, and uh, then the uh, other one on the burning of Chambersburg. Why did Chambersburg matter in the war? Well, that's a good question. I'd like to think I had something to do with bringing about more awareness of this event because traditionally it had been just a footnote in history. You'd see a sentence that would say the rebels went to Chambersburg on, on July 30, 1864 and burned it, period. But it was much more than that. The raid on Chambersburg was part of an overall effort by the uh, Confederates in the Eastern Theater of the Civil War to keep pressure off of Robert E. Lee's army at Richmond and Petersburg and keep the uh, Northern High Command in confusion and panic uh, and, and worry about whether uh, Washington, D.C. would be threatened. And it was threatened during this period. Less than a month before the burning of Chambersburg, Jubal Early had invaded Maryland with a force of uh, about uh, 14 or 15,000 Confederates and actually uh, got to the gates of Washington at, at the Battle of Fort Stevens. And when in the war was this? This is uh, uh, from the 10th, uh, to the uh, 13th of July, 1864. So fairly late in the war. Late in the war. Early had crossed the Potomac River. Well, let me go back further. A Union force under David Hunter had gone into the Shenandoah Valley and actually threatened the railroad center of Lynchburg, Virginia. He nearly captured Lynchburg, and Lee detached the Confederate armies, the Army of Northern Virginia's Second Corps under General Jubal Early, he detached them to go lift the siege of Lynchburg. When Early got there, he drove Hunter away, and Hunter, rather than going north, back up to the northern part of the Shenandoah Valley, Hunter panicked, and he went across the state of West Virginia, completely out of the region leaving the Shenandoah Valley open for... Oh, undefended? Undefended for <clears throat> Early to move north. Early moved north and captured uh, Martinsburg, nearly captured Harper's Ferry, but the Federals at Harper's Ferry went into the defenses of Maryland Heights where they were very well protected. So Early, rather than waste his time there, continued east to Frederick, now at Frederick, Maryland, he fought some skirmishes there. And then on 9 July, 1864, he fought the Battle of Monocacy. Union General Lew Wallace brought his small army, just a few thousand men, out of Baltimore, out to meet battle with Early. The Confederates won from the tactical side of things, but they lost in the operational end of things, meaning the more macro end of things, because they were delayed a day. And that was an important delay because 
By the time they got to the gates of Washington, Union reinforcements had been brought in, and they were stopped at the Battle of Fort Stevens. From there, Early broke off his attempt to capture Washington and went back into the lower Shenandoah Valley. When he got into Jefferson County, uh, West Virginia, among other areas, he found out that Hunter had returned and was burning private dwellings down there. Even, he even burned his cousin's home, Daniel Hunter's home, near Charlestown. Was that kind of unheard of at the time, up at that point? It had been going on, but not as much in the Eastern Theater. It had happened, <clears throat> excuse me, in the so-called Western Theater of the Civil War, and it had happened out in the Trans-Mississippi, where you'd had <clears throat> uh, guerrilla groups like Quantrell's Raiders, who were irregular Confederate groups. You had that type of thing going on, but not so much in the East. So, what happens is, early, and he'll say in his memoirs, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said that, uh, I saw that we would have to, sh you know, give, show the enormity of this to the North by an example of retaliation. So he gets one of his cavalry commanders, General John McCausland, Brigadier General John McCausland, and another brigade under Brigadier General Bradley Johnson, who was a former attorney from Frederick, Maryland, by the way, <clears throat> is 2,800 men. And they will cross the Potomac River near Clear Spring, Maryland at McCoy's Ferry Ford on 29 July, 1864. Their destination is Chambersburg. They are to levy a tribute on the town, either $100,000 in gold, or $500,000 in greenback. Those greenbacks are even more valuable than Confederate money for the Confederates. Ostensibly, this money, this ransom, if paid, is to go to the victims of de Union depredations in Virginia. They'll cross, and by 30 July, early on the morning of 30 July, they'll be at Chambersburg. They'll, Why did they target Chambersburg? That's a good question. Why do they target Chambersburg? <clears throat> because it is the only nor pure northern Unionist town in the region. Now, they <clears throat> actually ransomed on 6 July 1864, they'd ransomed Hagerstown, Maryland. But that was actually a town of divided loyalties. And they came up with the money. Uh, actually, they came up with $20,000. Uh, tradition says the Confederates wanted $200,000 for Hagerstown. But one tradition says that they, and this is debated, there's a friend of mine who has a new book out on this whole thing. And um, the, the uh, tradition says they missed a decimal point which is kind of funny because McCausland, who was in on that one, was a former math instructor at DMI. <laughs> so anyway, Hagerstown paid. But now that, uh, that Early has seen this destruction by Union General Hunter, he makes that statement in his memoirs, he, and he doesn't regret giving the order. So it's an example in, re, uh, in the form of retaliation, Chambersburg, 
was a railhead for the Cumberland Valley Railroad, one of the important railroads in the region. It was the headquarters of the Union Depart Military Department of the Susquehanna. And it was a thriving commercial and agricultural community. Many uh, Southern sympathizers in Chambersburg? Not many Southern sympathizers. In, in Franklin County, which Chambersburg is the county seat, you did have some Southern sympathizers down in the along the state line near Maryland. Since it was right across the Mason-Dixon line, were there a lot of uh, runaway slaves or, or yes, free blacks who settled there? there were. And as a matter of fact, the Underground Railroad went right through that region, which is why uh, you had an infrastructure of these safe houses. And this is a factor in John Brown planning much of his Harper's Ferry raid in the summer of 1859 in Chambersburg. I, I hate to do these sidebars, but you no, mentioned fine. Lou Wallace. He, uh, he's the Lou Wallace who wrote uh, Ben-Hur. He's the Lou Wallace who wrote Ben-Hur and was the territorial governor of New Mexico during the Lincoln County War with Billy the Kid after the Civil War. That's correct. And the other question is, the, the, just so I, I got it right, the Shenandoah Valley through Virginia, if you follow that up north, that reaches Chambersburg, that leads right up to Chambersburg? Is yeah, that right? it's all part of the Great Valley which runs from Vermont clear down to Alabama. It has different names at different places. If you uh, are, are in Pennsylvania, it's the Cumberland Valley. And if you cross the Potomac River, it becomes the Shenandoah Valley. Okay, uh, and back to, uh, back to the, the Jubal Early and troops heading to Chambersburg. Sorry okay. I interrupted. That's fine. Uh, there's 2,800 men. They have, depending on the account you read, they have four to six cannon with them. And uh, they will cross at McCoy's Ferry Ford near Clear Spring, Maryland, and they'll have to fight their way up because there's a detachment of, uh, and incredibly, only about 35 men from uh, under uh, Lieutenant Hancock McLean from the uh, barracks at Carlisle. And they come down and kind of in a, as a finger in the dike uh, operation, they will hold up the Confederate cavalry for at least a day. There'll actually be a skirmish in the square in Mercersburg. And uh, then they'll be pushed aside. They'll ride back to Chambersburg where there's a skeleton force of just around 100 or a little more Union troops there under General Darius Couch, who's the uh, commander of the Department of the Susquehanna. And uh, they'll make a brief stand west of Chambersburg early on the morning of the 30th in the darkness. They'll fire, a, they have a couple cannon, and they'll fire a cannon right into the head of the Confederate column, kill one or two and wound a number, and then they'll hightail it out of, abandon the town. McCausland, at, at daylight, will come into the town with about 800 of his men. He leaves the rest, the other 2,000 or so on a ridgeline just west of Chambersburg. And um, when he comes into town, he asks for the mayor. Well, they can't find the mayor. The mayor is hiding. He asks for the town council. He can't find them. They're all hiding. He gets a local attorney to round up prominent people. And <clears throat> what's incredible is, and you'll see this in the book, there's accounts from civilians and from Confederates that were there that tell about people not believing this threat. 
I want to read this. He yeah. say the, the good behavior of Jeb Stuart's Cavaliers in 1862 and Lee's army in 1863 had lulled the people of Chambersburg into a false sense of security. Mm -hmm. In 1862, Jeb Stuart had raided just a few weeks after the Battle of Antietam. Lee had sent him up there for a number of reasons, to gather livestock, to disrupt the uh, Cumberland Valley Railroad, which they did. They destroyed the roundhouse and the shops there and uh, also to see what the Union Army was up to, to ride around McClellan again. And uh, this raid was a national disgrace. It was one of the major factors in the uh, dismissal, dismissal of George B. McClellan as commander of the Army of the Potomac. That's the first Chambersburg raid. But he'd been very magnanimous uh, and uh, had really not bothered civilian property except for a warehouse in town that was a government contractor and uh, had uniforms and all. So they took the uniforms and other supplies and then they burned that warehouse. But uh, generally he was very magnanimous as was Robert E. Lee. Lee had strict orders for his men in the Gettysburg campaign, do not molest uh, civilian property. They did, not, but still there was some kind of hold on it because of Robert E. Lee's order. Now, no more Mr. Nice Guy. With yeah, did thing. Lee change his orders on that, or did some of his subordinates decide that we're going to burn this town anyway? The order came from Jubal Early, who was a, a vehement anti-unionist. He had burned Thaddeus Stevens' blacksmith shop at Caledonia on the march to Gettysburg in 1863, and he'd threatened to burn York if they didn't turn over uh, a small ransom, uh, supplies and things like that. So he was always ready for this, and uh, he was the one that gave the order, but Lee supported it. So they got the, uh, the town, uh, town people together, and the town people thought they were bluffing? The town people thought they were, it was a big joke. They thought it was just a big bluff. And they finally rounded up uh, about a dozen prominent citizens uh, lawyers, businessmen, and they read the orders of General Early again. What, and, but nobody could come up with the money because the money was not there. The money had been sent out and, and sent to safer places, to Harrisburg or Philadelphia, much prior to this. So they, they, there was no way they were going to pay that kind of ransom. So, and this is much debated on how long it they waited, but uh, it wasn't too long before they started setting fires. And as you see depicted on the cover there, the first big fire was set right on the courthouse steps. They broke up furniture and all, poured coal oil on it, and set, a f set fires there. And then other places, soon the fire became general. Meanwhile, the Confederates uh, went into an orgy of looting. They got into the liquor supplies there, and they were... Many, many of them were drunk and going around uh, stealing anything, candy, women's dresses, children's clothing, anything they could get a hold of. Did this kind of thing happen other places in the, with the Confederate Army, or was this unusual? It was unusual for the Eastern Theater of the War. Like I say, in 1863, Lee had very strict orders about how his men were to behave. In 1862, Jeb Stuart, this great gentleman cavalier, 
would not have that sort of behavior going on. So it was, it, now it wasn't unusual for the Trans-Mississippi with groups like Quantrell's Raiders and things like that, but it was atypical for the Confederates in the Eastern Theater of the War in 1864. Were there fatalities? People often ask that question, were there fatalities? There was at least one citizen that died from this. This was an aged African-American man who'd come to Chambersburg via the Underground Railroad years before. And the Confederates were harassing him, throwing him in his burning house, and he'd come out and they'd throw him back in just to harass him. And he either died of a heart attack or from smoke inhalation. However, there were other fatalities, and they were Confederate. Because the Confederates were drunk, some of them got separated from their command. Captain Calder Bailey, who was the adjutant of the 8th Virginia Cavalry, he got separated from his command, and he was set upon by a mob of angry citizens who either shot him or beat him to death. There were two, there's one report of two Confederates getting, going into a drugstore, setting it on fire and lock, having locked themselves in this drugstore. And uh, the owner of the drugstore comes and shoots a shotgun through the window and either disables them or uh, and they'll die in the flames or he, or he kills them. Now, on the withdrawal from Chambersburg, there's a number of Confederate fatalities. There was a Confederate officer that apparently straggled, and he, this was out at the village of St. Thomas. For baseball fans out there, that's the Nellie Fox's hometown. And uh, uh, he was set upon by apparently two Union veterans, and when they found out, found out what, that he was involved in the burning of Chambersburg, they apparently gave him 15 minutes to say his, his last words and just executed him on the spot. And then there was a young Confederate soldier that came to the village of Fort Loudon, and uh, he, his horse threw a shoe, and he went to the blacksmith. And uh, either there's several versions of this, but uh, one is that the blacksmith was a Union veteran, and when the opportunity arose, he took his mallet and brained the young soldier. And he's buried in an unknown soldier's grave. It just says unknown Confederate. He's buried in Stinger Hill Cemetery in Fort Loudoun. And you can see many of these places because in my uh, small book there on the burning of Chambersburg, there's a guide that you, uh, the driving tour that you can take uh, that takes you to all these sites that I write about. How big was the fire? The fire consumed the whole inner core of the town, uh, about two blocks every direction from the town square or the diamond, as they called it back then. Over 500 structures were destroyed. Over 2,000 people were left homeless. I want to show this picture. You have four buildings remain surrounded by the debris of burned houses. Local folklore says that the buildings were owned by townspeople who performed a superstitious ritual which would protect their homes from fire. The buildings stand today. Is everything around them burned in those houses? Yeah, that gets back into old, Pen and I know you've had people on this show that talk about Pennsylvania German customs, you know. And one of these customs was it's called powwowing, you know, where you say uh, certain phrases from the Bible usually, and that can heal people or it can protect a home. When I was a kid, my uncle uh, 
used to tell about uh, one of these procedures where you would, uh, uh, if the if I, to protect your house from burning, if you if you um, if there was a house on fire, you were to get a bucket of urine and walk around that burning house, chanting some incantations, quotes from the Bible, uh, that sort of thing. And apparently, these people claim to have this type of protection uh, by having uh, one I know they write about where uh, they use some old gypsy curse to protect the house and it was not burned. So take it or leave it. <laughs> uh, so where did the people go when the fire was going on, when the, when the invasion was taking place? Well, you know, we're used to seeing refugee problems today. You can just turn on the TV and see refugees, whether it's on the Mexican border or over in the Mideast. But that happened right here in the Cumberland Valley, where thousands of refugees fled, many of them coming up to the Harrisburg area. And uh, there were, sometimes they'd stay with relatives or friends. Uh, sometimes they didn't have any place to go. But they would come up this way. They would take uh, live, their livestock, whatever they could load on a wagon, and skedaddle out of there. Uh, and after the uh, burning, the burning of Chambersburg begins, I, I think it's part of, uh, in American history, part of the trend to have aid drives for various things. You know, we've had farm aid, we've even had Willie aid for Willie Nelson, remember? <laughs> uh, but I think that tradition may have started during the Civil War. Uh, and Chambersburg may have been one of the first because um, it, there was a national uh, effort to raise money and get supplies for the destitute folks of Chambersburg. Gr uh, groups like the Oddfellows sent out circulars to raise money for, for this. Church groups, they were involved. There was a, a local uh, preacher, a Reverend Schenck, who was with the Reformed Church, which uh, was big in the Cumberland Valley. And um, he wrote a book with various accounts, and that book uh, came out uh, in August of 18, just with, within weeks or so of the burning, and it went through a number, I think upwards of four editions. I have one edition that's uh, was printed in October of 1864, and that was, those books were sold to raise money for the uh, destitute from the uh, burning. How long did the fire burn? Well, it probably went, I think it went on for a couple of days, you know, before it was finally out. There was a tremendous uh, uh, storm, uh, firestorm from all of it. Uh, it had all these buildings burning, and uh, that fire feeds, you know, we can see this on TV today with wildfires. And all. It'll feed on itself, so that inner part of the town would have burned uh, at least 48 hours or maybe a little more. You say in here, local tradition holds that a Confederate, a Confederate officer came across the Masonic Temple and being a Mason, he posted guards to prevent it from being burned along with nearby buildings, which if fired would have threatened it. But you'd think that the fire would get big enough that anything would burn. Well, that, that here again, tradition holds. If you're not sure of something, <laughs> say tradition holds. <laughs> that, that covers everything. Uh, and tradition holds that the local Masonic Temple was protected by fellow Masons uh, in the Confederate Army. And uh, the, the, uh, the Masonic Temple, by the way, back then, 
the Union Provost Marshal had his headquarters there at the Masonic Temple. But it was spared, or accidentally or on purpose, not sure. And there are, uh, there's other Masonic involvement. This Captain Bailey that I mentioned that was killed by the angry mob, he was a Mason. So he was buried in an unmarked grave in Chambersburg, but his wife was, the, was able to negotiate because he was a Mason. And so she was able to negotiate with fellow Masons in Chambersburg, get his body removed back to Virginia. Now the courthouse that you have on the cover that's in flames here, was, was that rebuilt? I mean, does it look like that today? It looks very much like that today. For the courthouse, it was not completely consumed in the flames, but rather it was uh, gutted. But uh, it was rebuilt and uh, retains much of its Civil War appearance today. Now, if you follow the, the driving tour in the back of this book, where does it take you? Well, you start at McCoy's Ferry Ford uh, near Clear Spring, Maryland, where they crossed. And by the way, Jeb Stewart crossed there in October 1862 on his raid. And uh, it takes you up McCausland's route uh, through Clear Spring, through Mercersburg, on to Chambersburg, and it'll take you to sites like the Masonic Temple in Chambersburg. And then you'll, fall, you'll take it and follow McCausland out of town, and you'll see the grave of the unknown Confederate. And uh, it goes all the way back to uh, down to West Virginia, to Moorfield, West Virginia, where in early August, the first week in August, 1864, the Union Cavalry caught up with McCausland and uh, pretty much, uh, uh, very much damaged McCausland's force. Uh, you say in the book, the engagement at Moorfield stands out as one of the most complete defeats inflicted on a military force in the war. It's not one of the more famous battles. It's not a famous battle, and it's not, a, it's not big like Gettysburg or Antietam, but it's, uh, it's a very complete uh, defeat because the Confederates are caught napping. They think they're safe because they're in Hardy County, West Virginia, which was a Confederate stronghold. And uh, they refused to listen to one of the local guerrilla groups, McNeil's Rangers, who are rather notorious in that region. And uh, they tell them, you know, put your guards out. The Yankees may be coming soon. McCausland doesn't listen to them. So um, Averill, the Union cavalry commander that gives chase on this, uses what are known as Jesse Scouts. These are Union cavalrymen dressed as Confederates who will go ahead and actually infiltrate the Confederate camp and um, then get word back to the rest of the Union forces. So it's in the early morning darkness they will charge into the Confederate camp, overrun the Confederate camp, and uh, the, the Confederates have to fight uh, have a fighting retreat, so to speak, have to gather up and they'll pull back, but they're, they're overrun and they'll suffer um, almost 500 casualties. Most of them are, are captured, but there is a number of killed and wounded, and they'll capture several of the cannon and uh, literally rout the Confederates. And Jubal Early, who did not like cavalry in the first place, said that that battle had a very negative effect on his cavalry for the rest of the war. Now, how long did the Confederates stick around Chambersburg once they burned it? Oh, they get out of there fairly quickly. Uh, uh, by uh, late morning, they're on their way out of town. And uh, the 
uh, Union Cavalry under General Alvaro is down at uh, Greencastle, just north of Greencastle at, at, at the Fleming Farm. Which is just south of Chambersburg, south Yeah, it's right along Route 11, which was the Valley Pike back then. Yeah, it's about uh, seven or eight miles south of Chambersburg. Averill is getting all these messages from General Couch at Chambersburg to come help him. But Averill is under the jurisdiction of the Union Department of West Virginia. And he's been driven out of Hagerstown that day by other Confederate forces that General Early has thrown out there to, to fool the Yankees. And uh, what uh, Averill does is he's waiting to get orders from the Department of Susquehanna. It's a bureaucratic snafu because you have these adjoining uh, military departments. You have about three or four military departments that all come together in that region. So it causes some confusion of who's in charge here, you know, whose responsibility is this over in this sector. So uh, the uh, uh, Averill will delay. And some accounts suggest he was drunk. He's, sleep, he's sleeping on the front yard of the Fleming farm. And um, anyway, he, he will finally, when he hears, uh, the he, he hears cannon, the Confederates that morning had fired cannon to announce their arrival. When he hears that, he'll finally decide to move, but he'll move to the east, to the village of New Franklin, thinking that in 1862, Jeb Stewart had moved had done a complete circle, had, had raided Chambersburg and then going back by way of Adams County and down, down into Frederick County, Maryland, uh, thinking that McCausland would do the same thing. But when he gets to New Franklin, he looks toward Chambersburg and he sees the big plume of smoke and goes that way and finds out what's happened. Did McCausland and company do this with other towns, threaten them with uh, Yes, they did, as a matter of them? fact. On the withdrawal back to Virginia, McCaw they'll stop in Hancock, which was a Maryland town of mixed sympathies. And he starts to demand a $30,000 ransom on Hancock. Well, Bradley Johnson, his second in command, is a Marylander, and he has Maryland cavalry with him. And Johnson posts Maryland cavalry at the door of every house in Hancock to make sure the rest of the Confederates don't loot like they did in Chambersburg. And they have a big argument. There's almost a mutiny which is interrupted by the timely arrival of Averill's cavalry and an armored rail Union railroad car across the river on the B&O firing cannon shells at the Confederates. So they, that mutiny does not happen, and they continue on to Cumberland and try to capture Cumberland, Maryland, because that was an important B&O rail center. They fail to capture Cumberland. They're stopped at the Battle of Folks Mill, and they continue they cross the river finally uh, near Old Town, Maryland, and back, go back into Virginia. And then finally the Union forces catch up with them down at, uh, in Hardy County, down Moorefield. So was that the plan all along to cross into Pennsylvania and hit a few towns and then come right back? That was the plan all along. <coughs> uh, anytime there's a Confederate incursion north of the Potomac, they are going to disrupt the B&O Railroad and disrupt the CNO, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. And the reason for that is, one of the major reasons is the coal industry. We think of Pennsylvania and West Virginia, but back then there were mines, very important mines, 
west of Cumberland, Maryland, and by 1864, almost 800,000 tons of coal is being shipped, some on the CNO Canal and mostly on the B&O Railroad, shipped east. So it's important to disrupt those lines, those transportation lines. And McCausland also wants to get into Cumberland to destroy the, uh, the rail yards and the rail shops up there. Now, this, this other book that um, has just been reprinted by White Main Publishing, Southern Revenge, you talk about the fact that Chambersburg was invaded three times, and you referred to the 1862. And, uh, can you talk about the 1863 one, the preamble to Gettysburg? Chambersburg sees more mili consistent military activity than any other community north of the Potomac, definitely north of the Mason-Dixon Mason line throughout the Civil War. In 18, in 18, we can go back to 1859. John Brown plans his Harper's Ferry raid, which is, historians agree is one of the key events, the, one of the final you know, straw that broke the camel's back to bring about the war. In 1861, Union General Robert Patterson stages an army at Chambersburg to try to uh, contain Confederate forces in the Shenandoah Valley. You don't hear much about that campaign because it fails, but uh, it's one of the largest armies in the history of the Republic up to that time, 20,000 Union soldiers. Uh, in 1862, Chambersburg is important because it's a rail center and after the Battle of Antietam, uh, you have uh, over 400 wounded soldiers from that battle brought to Chambersburg on the railroad and treated in churches and various other places that have been converted as hospitals. In 1863, it's the gathering point, concentration point for Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia in late June, 1863. And it's at Chambersburg where Lee will make the decision to move eastward toward Cashtown and ultimately to Gettysburg. Is there some marker in, in Chambersburg that says Robert E. Lee stood here? Yes, there is. There there, is. There's, he has a meeting with, uh, with uh, General A.P. Hill right in the square, or in the diamond, as it was referred to back then. And uh, he will uh, meet Hill, and there's, there's a little marker actually in the, in the ground you want to be careful if you want to go see it that you don't get run over by traffic because <laughs> it's right out uh, in front of the uh, fountain, which was, was a memorial fountain, by the way, with a soldier there that was put up uh, in the 1870s to remember the men from Franklin County that went off to f fight in the, in the Civil War. So there's a monument there. There's a uh, Pennsylvania, Histor uh, Pennsylvania Museum uh, historical uh, uh, commission sign that talks about his council of war with A.P. Hill, but it, it's it's wrong. Occasionally, some of those are inaccurate, and uh, this one has uh, uh, the date wrong, and that's because I think they got their info from Jacob Hoke's book, The Great Invasion, which is one of the best books done on the civilian aspects of the Gettysburg campaign, as far as the Confederates moving up through the Cumberland Valley and retreating through the, the Cumberland Valley. 
But uh, Hoke has that meeting on uh, June 26, 1863. But Lee was just crossing the Potomac at Williamsport, Maryland at that time. So that meeting was on the 27th of uh, June rather than the 26th, what the sign says. Then there's a stone monument also uh, to uh, commemorate the burning of the town. I want to read this. It's in, uh, in this book on uh, Southern Revenge from June 27th. It's a, a diary from a, a Chambersburger who says, about 11 o'clock, General Lee passed with his staff. He's a fine-looking man, medium-sized, stoutly built, has the face of a good liver, gray beard and mustache, poorly dressed for an officer of his grade. He wore a felt hat, black, and a heavy overcoat with large cape. His horse appeared to be a rather indifferent one for a man who reputedly is fond of fine stock. And this, uh, that may be from Jacob Hoke. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if... Well, let me see if I can find who, whose diary. Uh, William Heiser. William Heiser, okay. Jacob Hoke uh, has another account of, of Lee in the, in the diamond there. Yeah. But Lee, he wasn't flashy. Jeb Stewart was flashy. Je, Jeb Stewart wore capes and plumed hats and all that, but Lee was very simple in his garb. It says in here, Ewell had his headquarters at Chambersburg? Yes, Richard Stoddard Ewell had been uh, seriously wounded in the Second Manassas Campaign, which uh, in, in 18, uh, August 1862, which necessitated the amputation of his leg, and they replaced it with a peg leg. And he's recovering until the, uh, pretty much until the, uh, get it in, until 1863, the Gettysburg camp, time of the Gettysburg campaign. Much of the time he's riding during this campaign in a carriage with his wooden leg propped up. The newspaper editor in Greencastle mentioned seeing him in the square there and said, he uh, appeared pale and delicate because he just suffered this loss of a leg. And I guess you would appear pale and delicate and you're out on the campaign again. But he made his headquarters at the Franklin House Hotel right on the Diamond, which is where the Central Presbyterian Church is located today. He also mentioned that in 1863, the Confederates burned the Caledonia Iron Works. Yes, Jubal Early did that. As a matter of fact, uh, this was uh, on, uh, I believe, June 26, 1863. And this is just a few days before Gettysburg. Right? This is correct. Early was on Route 30 today. It's the Gettysburg, Chambersburg Pike. And he goes to Caledonia Iron Works, which was owned by Thaddeus Stevens, who was congressman. <laughs> he was a vehement uh, anti-Southern. So old Jube, Jubal Early, uh, old Jube, as he was known as Reddy, and willing to burn down the place because of Stevens's sympathies. And when, the, when they go there, the, the uh, workers there plead with old Jube. They say, please don't burn this. He, he doesn't make a profit by this. He, he just keeps it open for the, to keep the people in jobs. And uh, old Jube snorted back, Yankees don't do business like that. They're only in business to make money. Burn the place down. <laughs> You say in the book that they, they had to persuade uh, Thaddeus Stevens to leave because he didn't want to he didn't want to leave the Caledonia Iron Works. Well, he 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 was uh, he he had gotten out. He'd gotten to safety. He was not around at that time. But they're pleading, uh, you know, that it's only kept open to keep the people in the jobs. But old Jube wasn't buying that one.
So all this took place when the Confederates were on their way to Gettysburg. Correct. When they retreated, did they go through Chambersburg again? A few of them. They're mainly going through Fairfield Gap and Monterey Pass, uh, the bulk of Lee's army. His wagon train of wounded, uh, most of the wounded, which was 17 miles long and probably between eight to 10,000 wounded men, is gonna go by way of Cashtown and then cross country through Franklin County and uh, down through uh, places like Marion, through Greencastle, and down, then down the Williamsport Greencastle Pike to Williamsport, Maryland, and the Potomac. However, during this uh, period of time, it's rainy, it's dark, and it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's in segments. It's not one continuous wagon train. It's in segments. And the, um, there's about 10 wag, Confederate wagons in this heavy rain in the middle of the night. They're kind of disoriented. And they ask a local farmer down at Marion, which way to the Potomac? Well, he points that way. And that way is Chambersburg. So they'll soon, you know, by daylight, they'll arrive in Chambersburg and find themselves prisoners. There's a handful of wounded and unwounded Confederates, and they find themselves taken prisoner, and they'd be kept in the Franklin County uh, Jail. And you say that the phrase, remember Chambersburg, became a, a battle cry later in the war. It did. Uh, when when uh, Sheridan's man, Union General Philip Sheridan will, uh, of course, lead the final campaign in the Shenandoah Valley. He'll be appointed, he'll, he'll be given the unified command in that sector by, by General Grant. And they'll burn, they have something that's known in history as the burning, which is the destruction of farms, mills, the destruction of, in the Shendal Valley, of all capability to produce grain. That was known as the breadbasket of the Confederacy. And so these grist mills, all these places are destroyed because they want no sustenance going from the valley over to Lee's army. And that's called the burning. And many times when the men go to destroy these places, they'll be yelling, remember Chambersburg. And it's the same case in a few instances on Sherman's march through Georgia, particularly with Pennsylvania troops that are with Sherman. It is heard in a few in number of instances where they'll yell, remember Chambersburg. Was the burning of Chambersburg national news at the time? I mean, did everybody yes. know that it happened? Yes, mm -hmm. it was national news. And again, I, I, I believe, uh, I haven't made an extensive study of this, but I believe it's one of the first national relief efforts. Now, in the back of this book, you uh, list a, a thing called Chambersburg Civil War Seminars, sponsored by the Greater Chambersburg Chamber of Commerce. What is that? Well, the president of the uh, uh, Chambersburg Chamber of Commerce is David Shimana, and he's a very far-sighted Chamber of Commerce president who looks not only at the commerce end of things, which of course is very important, but also he looked at the heritage end of things, and he was the one that decided to start focusing on the heritage of the region, the Civil War heritage, and this is over 25 years ago in 1989. And uh, he brought me on the team as a consultant, to, and we 
did a number of things. One of them was the first printing of Southern Revenge, this booklet, on, this book rather, on uh, on Chambersburg uh, in the Civil War, and he he did a number of projects. But we started the Chambersburg Civil War seminars, and that's one. It's one of the largest Civil War seminars in the country. We have people from all over the United States and all over the world. We've had people from Ch uh, China. Uh, we've had people from Australia, from the UK and Canada come to this every year. Uh, over the years, it's been several thousand people that attend these. We put on three or four a year. We, have the, we just had the big one uh, last week. Uh, it's every July around close, not on, but close to the anniversary of the burning of Chambersburg. And on different, it's different themes all the time. Uh, we did Gettysburg during the 150th anniversary of Gettysburg. We focused on Gettysburg. Re this last one, of course, was Terror on the Border, and it focused on the burning of Chambersburg, Jubal Early's invasion of Maryland, the Battle of Monocacy, the Battle of Fort Stevens. So we had bus tours, and we have sessions with lectures. And we get uh, many of the top Civil War historians in the country, Mr. Ed Bars, Jeffrey Wirt. We've had... Uh, James McPherson, we've had Bud Robertson, and I could go down the list. Uh, we've had people, uh, Scott Hartwig, who's been on your mm -hmm. uh, station here, many of the Gettysburg historians and uh, historians from all over the country. Do you have a couple of favorite Civil War characters? Well, uh, one of mine uh, has been Nathan Bedford Forrest. He's very controversial, but he is a fascinating character. Uh, uh, he was from Mississippi, and uh, I guess that I had some affinity. Plus, at my birthplace of Tupelo, Mississippi, is one of his two of his famous battles, one right at Tupelo in 1864, and the more famous one is the Battle of Bryce's Crossroads, which is very near Tupelo. And uh, that was, he was a military genius. He was able to uh, take on about three times his number of Union forces at Bryce's Crossroads. He's very controversial for things like the Fort Pillow Massacre uh, of uh, black troops. Uh, he was involved in some way, it seems, with the KKK after the Civil War. He was very controversial. Another one of mine is uh, George Armstrong Custer. Give, give equal time here on the on the Union side. He's, I think, one of the more fascinating. Uh, I like to read about Custer, and of course, he was uh, in Franklin County at the Battle of Monterey Pass on July four and five, eighteen sixty-three, during the retreat from Gettysburg. That's the second largest Civil War action in Pennsylvania during the Civil War, and, and uh, he uh, that was during the retreat, and Custer was there. May have had a horse shot from under him. I'm not sure on that, but uh, so I like I like Custer. He's he's an interesting guy. What do you like to read about the Civil War? What do I like to read about yeah. the Civil War? Well, my main I, I like to read uh, mainly on what is my major focus, and that is the Civil War in the Cumberland Valley, in, in Maryland and Pennsylvania, the Maryland Campaign of 1862. The Battle of Antietam, of course, the Gettysburg Campaign. I'm writing a book on the retreat from Gettysburg that I hope will be out next year. Uh, I also like to 
read about minorities in the Civil War, and I've written some on that. I co-authored a book for the National Park Service on Hispanics in the Civil War. There were more than 20,000 Hispanics on both sides, 20,000 total, but covering both sides. And we have a new book that the Park Service is putting out that I'm a contributor to on Asians in the Civil War. Now, there's only about 400 of them or so we found. How do you find stuff on them? Well, one of the things that helped us with the Asian book is there's a fellow down in Australia, Terry Fonender, who's done his own research on this over the years. So he was a valuable source on that. I've also written and lectured about Indians, American Indians in the Civil War. So that interests me also. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Ted Alexander. He is the author of this book, The Burning of Chambersburg and McCausland's Raid. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.